0: Hello. Yet another budget, or financial statement, only a few weeks after the last one. Taxes have been increased, not cut, and in an act of ruthless politics, most public expenditure cuts have been postponed until after the next election, giving an incoming government, most likely a Labour one, a highly poisoned chalice. The culture wars have taken a back seat during the financial crisis, and my latest guest hope it stays that way. His friendship with J.K. Rowling has upset some of his fellow Liberals and is keen that peace should now break out between the creator of Harry Potter and her critics. The
1: only winning move is not to
0: play. This week I'm delighted to be joined by one of the most passionate supporters of Norwich City Football Club, Um <laughs> Stephen Fry, known for one or two other things. Stephen, how would you introduce yourself? I mean, I could start and I'll still be talking by the end of this podcast. So how would you describe yourself?
1: Oh, my goodness. I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to attempt to to fit words around me. I'm very, I once um, dressed up in tights and doublet and hose kind of look because I'd had a a sneak peek at someone who was going to introduce me as a Renaissance man. So I thought if I came on stage dressed as something out of Shakespeare, that would prove him right. But uh, I'm very happy to be described as anything, to be honest. It's just nice to think that anybody wants to describe me.
0: Yes, well, you'll never be described as a, a participant in um, strictly come dancing, will you? I mean, oh, goodness! That Lord. you will never ever agree to.
1: No, and I, I, I think I have been embarrassingly misunderstood as if I'm sneering at the programme. I'm genuinely not. I was just—I have to express my complete fear. In fact, it's stronger than a fear. It's a phobia in the sense that it's used as both fear and hatred. <laughs> of dancing it embarrasses me there should be a word like phobia for embarrassment which is after all the British national emotion and I I literally, I have tears in my eyes if I see even like sort of 30 seconds of that programme, which is the most I've ever managed to watch of it without turning over. Again, I have to emphasise, it's not that I look down on the programme or people who love it. Some of the people I most admire in the world are absolutely addicted to that programme. It's just there's something in me that for some reason finds human bodies jerking about in time to music, dressed in spangly clothes, about as unwatchable as seeing someone's guts pulled out. I mean, it really is that bad for me. And it's quite... (laughs) Well, we've dealt with the BBC's most popular programme. Yes! (laughs) Yes!
0: (laughs) <laughs> but I want to ask you, about slightly more seriously, there's a big argument about the future of the BBC. It's clearly slimming down, and there's an argument about public service mm. broadcasting. I mean, at its basic, do you think the BBC, as it now is, not as it was, is worth saving?
1: I do. And one of the reasons I do is that I spend a lot of time away. And you realise that the things you value in the BBC daily are not the landmark drama series or the great and noble documentaries, fantastic as they are, because those those can be done by a production company and often are indeed done by an independent production company for the BBC. It's good that the BBC commissions them. It's good that it has a natural history unit. Obviously, that's one of the most valuable jewels in its crown. But it's I have to say, it's when I come back. It's things like the repair shop, or Countryfile, or Springwatch, those kinds of programmes that no independent kind of network, no streaming entity, would ever, ever give you. Partly in the case of obviously Springwatch and and its other seasonal variants, because they're live uh, and streaming by definition almost can't you know can't produce that. Although having said this, Netflix is about to show Chris Rock uh, giving a live performance, their first ever live Netflix show. But that aside, so it is things like that. Now, obviously, in the past, the first thing I would say, with kind of special pleading was the commissioning of new writing and new comedy, in particular, has been consistently one of its great strengths, and still is, you know, you look at things like this country, whatever, I mean, absolutely fabulous what the BBC is still doing. But it has essential,
0: I mean, some people would argue that, okay, the BBC have done these things in the past, there are plenty of other ways of these things being made at the moment and in the future... And others then say, OK, look at market failure. Look what the market can't deliver. And then they're left with saying, well, for example, local radio is essential and shouldn't be cut back as it is being, because that's something unique. Uh, it's got to make money internationally. But do you think it should concentrate on those things which it, it are uniquely British, if you like?
1: <sighs> Gosh, I mean, yes, that has always been and will continue to be and remains one of the, you know, major features of the BBC and the things we value in it are where it speaks to the nation and those of us who've made um, documentaries say for the BBC are always reminded by the commissioning editors that it's for a British audience primarily even if you're getting some of your money for an independent producer or production company and you're hoping to sell it around the world which would I mean, people don't need to know all this boring kind of commercial financial stuff, but if you have a an independent company, The BBC will pay you what is very confusingly called a licence fee, (laughs) but it's nothing to do with the licence fee that viewers pay. That's to say a licence. They will pay you a licence, which is... In other
0: words, they're not going to pay for the complete budget. No. They'll give you a significant sum, and you have to go and find that money elsewhere.
1: Yeah, and other people want the programme to be universal, globally sellable, and therefore not necessarily concentrating entirely on British life and culture and values and all the, all the things that the BBC is supposedly there to express and to reinforce. And so there is that problem. But that's getting too much into the... Uh, I mean, from the point of view of a viewer, and I am a viewer, like everybody, more than I'm a producer, there isn't anybody, even Gary Lineker or <laughs> Graham Norton, watch more television than they make. Um, so we're all consumers and we all therefore have a view as consumers. And the anchor that BBC television is, and radio, it's a place to go to. I'm trying to think of some some way of comparing it to, to something in a, a village or a town, a, a, an amenity that you absolutely rely on but take for granted. I suspect that if the real enemies of the BBC ever got their way, it would be... I'm going to annoy a lot of people if I say this. It would be a bit like Brexit. A lot of people who thought it was a good idea to leave Europe, probably, if they're honest, now realise that it has thrown up enormous problems. They may believe those problems are worthwhile. And I've heard Brexit supporters say that that yes, there are problems, but we are free of Europe, and it's worth that. It's worth the enormous cost, the enormous losses that seem to be piling up. And similarly, people who are anxious to see the BBC destroyed, whether it's the Murdoch Empire, which has always been an enemy for various reasons, obviously, or bust people who think it's politically too far Uh, left or others who think it's politically too establishment and all the various reasons people have for for heaping scorn and derision and loathing on dear auntie b they will only when it's disappeared if they manage to get their way and destroy it or make it simply something like public broadcasting in america a kind of worthy poor unfortunate thing that can't afford to make any new programs but just shows you know educational, cultural, historic uh, kind of programs for a minority that may even have to use sponsorship or advertising or pledging and all the things that American public broadcasting does to survive. Only then will people go, oh, hang on, (laughs) what have we destroyed? What have we done? And it is perhaps part of the age the last twenty five years, this word "disruption" has been used a great deal it started well, as if it 's a virtue in itself, regardless of its consequences and without people noticing yeah that it means breaking, you break things uh, if you break into somebody, you interrupt them. if you just break things down, you disrupt them and zuckerberg, his catchphrase in the early days of Facebook was move fast and break things or move quickly and break things. I can't remember which, which adverb he used. But anyway, break things. And now, of course, he's trying to move slowly to mend things because if you break things, they get broken.
0: We're dealing with a situation here which is perhaps slightly less dramatic. The BBC isn't being destroyed. No bomb has been dropped. No. But it is being slowly financially strangled. Yes. So it, I, and, and it's trying to survive at the moment by a sort of salami sal- slicing. So a bit of the World Service goes and a Bits bit of local radio goes, certainly, after mm. 2 o'clock. And people are taking these decisions without any form, as far as I can see, of public consultation. And I wonder if we're at a moment where we actually say, hold on, this is too big and important for the government to decide, or the BBC in its management form at the moment to decide, there needs to be that wider debate. Is that wider debate possible, do you think?
1: It's very difficult, Roger. I mean... <laughs> You and I are old enough to remember a time when there were figures who had a kind of authority in the world, who were grandees of the kind that we now simply do not accept in public life. And they were figures like Noel Annan and Peacock, the Annan Report, the Peacock Report. They were these reports that laid down a vision of what the BBC could be and should be and fed into the charter renewal and so on and that happened in our early lifetime and each one looked like a kind of revolutionary new look at the BBC have you read the Annan report people would say have you seen the Peacock report (laughs) and um, you know then came John Burt and it seemed as though the BBC was being radically transformed by his um, you know producer's choice and all this sort of you know, making it a a market within one single corporation so that the one department had to pay another to use its, you know, so the drama department had to, could choose.
0: But you've said that, I think, about 12 years ago in a BAFTA interview, you were inveighing against, I think, uh, the, what had happened in terms of commissioning. You were, well, he didn't actually say this, but I don't know if it's true, lamenting a decision-making uh, where it was possible for one man, be it Bill Cotton or someone else, to say, right, I think these people will work. It'll be good. I'll back them. If it fails, sack me, but I'm going to commission it. Then you were describing a situation, even 20 years ago, where the number of people commissioning the same programme, and it was very difficult to get that commitment and conviction and backing at the centre of the BBC. That was 12 years ago. People I talk yeah. to now say it's even
1: worse. Exactly right. It's moved. It's moved away even further from the idea of a creative producer, a creative commissioner who goes by gut, who reads the zeitgeist or whatever one wants to call it, and has a feeling about a particular new talent wherever it may come from, and goes for it. Yes, I mean that was. You think of. Hugh Weldon in a tweed jacket and his bristling eyebrows and twinkly eyes uh, saying, well, go off and make it then. Now, of course, it's a lot harder. And I understand you can't (laughs) quite do that the way the way.
0: Yeah, but the ascent of man and civilization, I think, resulted from people precisely that. Ken
1: Russell's career was, you know, uh, you seem to know a lot about these musicians go off and make a film about Delius, then if you think it's interesting. And and Ken Russell made a film about Delius that is to this day one of the great achievements in television. But I, I know that's the past. The thing is, I call it interference and I spell it I-N-T-E-R-F-E-A-R. It's the fear in interference that it is, and this is hardly new, it is so much easier to say no than yes. If you say no then you're not blamed for anything that follows, even if you've said no to something that in another place on another channel or station turns out to be a hit. So in publishing, for example, there are people that are pointed out at literary festivals she turned down the first Harry Potter book, people will say. <laughs> and you you kind of think, oh, that poor person, they're going to have to live with that and give their excuse every time. Ah, yes. Well, you know, we had a firm policy that no children's book over 30,000 words could be published. And this was too long. So I didn't actually read it. And it was the fault of the policy. You know, all those sort of excuses rather than an individual feeling. And in the film business, the independent film business and uh, t- television business, it's very clear to see that producers are a hugely creative force. And theres I used to wonder why it was that producers, when a movie got best film, it was the producer that got given the award and held it up and said, thank you, not the director or the writer. But I now understand, <laughs> having worked in this business, that it is creative producers who take risks on talent who find talent that you know if i if we look at comedy for example when i was growing up as it were just as i was leaving university and one looking around and discovering that there was this bbc there were people like paul jackson and john plowman who were young producers in comedy they would go to edinburgh and they would watch 70 comedy shows in two weeks and they would see someone and go oh I like them they're they're extraordinary and they would go around and say do you fancy putting together a show for the BBC do you think you could do a pilot do you think and that That would be it. No one else would be involved, you know, obviously. Yeah, but crucial to that, Stephen, is a controller or a
0: commissioning head who delegates authority to producers and backs them. That's right. And what you now have, people keep telling me all the time from within the BBC and elsewhere, seven, eight, ten people involved in decision-making, and then before they make the decision, they look at which particular grouping will this appeal to in the belief now that the audience is so fragmented... Yeah, that it's almost impossible to produce anything that will appeal across the generations. Are they right about that, that, that it is now impossible
1: to make comedy for a large audience? Well, it's certainly true that the young don't look to the BBC in the way that I did when I was young. They don't think, gosh, you know, I, well, the first time I went into television centre and was Wandering around where the studios are on on the ground floor the the green the red, the blue areas in the the circular building and and I saw David Jason and I saw Ronnie Barker coming out of a lift, and I was like. Oh, my goodness. You know, I felt like a, a painter who'd arrived in 15th century, 16th century Florence, you know. Oh, there's Michelangelo. Oh, my goodness. Look, uh, <laughs> no, it was just only he'd be in Rome, of course. Yeah, But, but you
0: see that people would say that's changed because we don't all sit on television. Changed. Set. That's now, what there I mean. are so many alternatives, although yeah. nine million will which some programs. So if you were head of comedy now at the BBC, both radio and television, would you accept that or what would you do? To say this is what we can do at the BBC with comedy that may not be done elsewhere.
1: I mean, I think there's a lot of what they do that's you know close to being very right. Uh, they do do new kinds of comedy programme, and you look at the big successes of the. Across television, they're not all BBC, but things like you know the detectorists and dairy girls in this England and pr- programs like that that are unusual and uh, and ghosts that have been instantly sold to America for changed format rights and so on that have and that are ha- that have young and unsung corners of England like its deep rural fastnesses are wonderfully explored and. They are very different. I think it's the fault of the culture that there is no coherent center, there is no focus. I mean, I remember when we did in 19, what was it, '89 or something, the last series of Black Adder and I was talking to some BBC executive who was saying, uh, there's the army. It's wonderful to see the army." I said, "Oh no. Don't you know? That series was not about the Army or the First World War. It was about the BBC. And the generals and the staff were the... the, 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 And he was going, what? I I kind of eventually twinkled and said, I'm kidding. But actually, there is and always has been a big comparison between the army and institutions like the BBC, which is to say there are staff officers and there are field officers in, in an army. And the staff officers are hated at the front line because they're not field. And if they've never been field officers, they're not trusted. Similarly in the BBC, if the people in management and executive positions are not and have never been programme makers, then how can you respect them? On the other hand, if you take out all your great field officers from the trenches and the front line and put them in a chateau, you know, 20 miles behind, you're wasting... Brilliant field officers. And similarly, if you take your great producers out of making programs and put them behind a desk and make them executives, so you've got a double problem. How do you solve it? How do you have reliable, trustworthy executives and managers and active and wonderful program makers if there's this divide between the two? Uh, but there's another question here, isn't it? Is whether any individual,
0: as happens at the moment, I think with BBC and with Channel 4, the assumption that any one individual should be in charge of content mm. because even Renaissance figures would struggle. Yeah. Some people argue for, and of course, it's very different times now, but it's a return to a situation where you have, if you like, barons. Somebody really in charge of co- comedy. Somebody really in charge of science and others, with the ability to commission and take decisions and be answerable afterwards, not before.
1: I agree, and not to be afraid of failure, not to be afraid that 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 first thing they commission might not do very well, might be, might get bad reviews and 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 small audiences. But you know, to to give them a chance to fail is important, but. The tighter the margins and the budgets and everything, the harder it is to have such a a culture of of risk. If you don't
0: do that, Stephen, people will in the end will say, well, why are we paying the license fee? I agree. One of the reasons for the license fee was supposed to be that it gave you a guaranteed income so that you could take risks that aren't as easily taken in the commercial sector.
1: Yeah, I think uh, you know it's very easy to say things like this, and I'm not in business or corporate. Uh, the corporate structures are, are closed to me. If I see a, you know, a, a, a spreadsheet or something, I clutch a table. So I'm really not good at this. But I have met extraordinary people. For example, and he's, he is an extreme example. I was lucky enough to know very well for ten or twelve years, fifteen, maybe even longer. Steve Jobs, the one of the founders of Apple. And he was an ordinary figure. I, I wouldn't have liked to have worked for him because his contempt was, you know, it could come out harsh. Uh, and, and he was never afraid to speak his mind about things he disapproved of. He wasn't really a business person in the normal run of things a Harvard MBA style or a PPE or whatever the equivalent in in British education is he, he wasn't a natural management guru he didn't read books about you know how to you know how, how to win friends and influence people or anything of that kind nor was he an engineer uh, he understood you know, a lot about computing, but he certainly couldn't really code or design a circuit board in the ways Steve Wozniak did, the co-founder. But he saw things. And in that sense, the word visionary is literally true of him. He saw, there's a famous comment he made, quote from Wayne Gretzky, the, the greatest uh, hockey player that Canada and possibly the world has ever seen, the Pele of hockey. And Gretzky was asked why he was so much better than anyone else. He said, "Everybody skates to the puck. I skate to where the puck is going to be." And that's that's how Beckenbauer played, and others. You know, they just had this sense of space and, and where things, you know, where the future was. And and that's what Jobs said about himself. And you need charismatic people. In charge of an organisation like the BBC, and it has had in its past charismatic people. In one, you know, I suppose the last was Greg Dyke, who had a deeply unfair dismissal, and and, uh, uh, and and he was never really given a chance to shine as a leader of the BBC. And with no disrespect to the others, I mean, I'm a great admirer of Charlotte Moore, who who has covered television in in various forms over the years, really, really well. And she's a good person. And she does take risks and so on. But you do need someone to be appointed by the governor's trustees, whoever it is who appoints director generals now, who is an exciting figure. And they attempt to do that. I mean, there was the point when, who were the two? There was a time when there were two DGs, Chetland and...
0: And John Burt, yes.
1: And John Burt. Yeah, well, (laughs) that was... Well, I all right talking about
0: this, Stephen, but they would say... essentially, those people you're talking about, those past DJs, are looking at expanding empires where the income was going up. Now we've got a DG who has got to make – I mean, it's dead easy, relatively, to invite people to in your office and tell you, hey, I've got a lot of money, what would you like to make? As opposed to, Mm -hmm. "We have not got a lot of money, what are we not going to make? And so they're under pressure, but they're under pressure culturally as well in two ways. One is there's a big battle going on in partiality where a lot of young people don't understand the concept – And a lot of other people think impartiality means protecting the government in power and not being too critical. So that battle is going backwards and forwards. The other one is this fear of offence in the culture wars uh, where you talk to, I'm afraid a lot of it comes down to transgender and so on. When you talk to producers and editors who are really scared and walk away, if possible, from that area, health warnings in ridiculous places. I mean, we're now getting them Shakespeare plays, have health warnings in front of them and so on. There is a fear that is almost tangible. And yet the comedy you were involved in the past, whatever, was almost deliberately sometimes, how can I not say challenging, I won't say offending, but challenging and were wonderfully funny. Are you more scared now of offending people than you were?
1: Um... To be honest, no, because I don't have an impulse to say the kinds of things that I know might offend people. So, you know, often I hear people say, oh, you can't say anything these days. And I want to say to them, well, what exactly do you want to say? What is it that you feel you can't say that you want to? And they go, well, I'm I'm not going to (laughs) say. (laughs) I <laughs> go, well, you can say to me, I'm not going to cancel you. Just tell me, quietly whisper in my ear, the thing you want to say that you feel you can't. And, you know, to be honest, there isn't much. I mean, yes, I think it would be fun to, as a, if I were working with Hugh on, on a Fry and Laurie show again, we might make fun of that cowardice and that tremulousness, if you like, just as we made fun of, you know, I don't know all kinds of uh, uh, attitudes and establishment. Uh, uh, yeah, and we were occasionally hauled up in front of Jim Moyer. who oh, the
0: head of, head of Light entertainment. Let me put you on the spot of on this one. If somebody said to you, I want you to get involved in the debate or dispute that's going on around J.K. Rowling and what she said and what some of her film stars who worked for her have said, would you want to take part in that? Or would you say, ah, it's not worth it, none of my business?
1: no i wouldn't i wouldn't um, I, I definitely wouldn't because I'm aware that you are you are talking about a uh, an issue where, where two sides are are very sore and and very very anxious about their enemies and uh, I just can't I would quote a great film it's it's a almost a children's film but it's a great film John badham's film war games where at the end, where they've made this AI entity, it's very actually very appropriate, uh, this AI entity has accidentally started a war, uh, not knowing the difference between the war games that it is programmed to play in order to find out various scenarios on behalf of the American government. It doesn't know the difference between that and a real war. and And so it starts warming up missiles. And they have to teach it very fast about the futility of war, which it hasn't yet understood. So they find a clever way to make it play noughts and crosses, tic-tac-toe, as, um, as Americans call it, which, as you know, you don't have to be very smart for it always to be a tie. So it plays tic-tac-toe, and then plays a million games of it in seconds, and then thinks for a bit, and then starts going through the war games at incredible speed and realizing they're all stalemates. And then it ends up with this very famous phrase. It it addresses its creator, who's called Professor Falcon, played by the great John Wood, one of the greatest actors of the 20th century, I think. Um, And it says, Greetings, Professor Falcon. Strange game. The only winning move is not to play. And that, (laughs) Roger, is my cowardly response to your question about J.K., who's a friend? I you know she's a friend of mine and I have trans friends and intersex friends who are deeply upset by her and and I'm that's a circle I have to square personally I'm not going to abandon my friends But is it also one in which uh, you're also
0: saying that actually both should stop fighting
1: I would love to see that because I don't think there's a winner and I don't think I know that J.K. Rowling doesn't want to see trans people bullied uh, alienated shut out of society, made to feel ashamed, guilty, laughed at, all those things. But I, I also know that she has, you know, that there are uh, people who believe that, safe feminine spaces and the idea of being the difference between sex and gender is very important and that they, um, uh, you know, repudiate uh, with, with all their strength, the kind of Judith Butler, you know, the idea of created gender and so on. And uh, it's not an argument I want to get involved in because it's upsetting to both sides. And I would, as you say, wish them both to retreat and to consider that it is possible for, you know, trans people to live full accepted lives according to their terms in society and for women to have all the rights and dignities that they demand. But it, it isn't possible if each side looks on the other as an enemy and, and the trans people just shout turf and the feminists uh, just seem to, as it were, undermine the dignity and rights of, of the trans community. If I can use the word community, it's a bit of a greasy word, but there you go. So, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> Roger, I'm from a different generation. And although I'm gay and although I've been an activist, as people might call me, in various directions, mental health and indeed sexuality and other such things, I recognize that I am the adult who's gone back to his old school and everything looks a bit different to the way I remember it. And more than that, it's not my school anymore. All the teachers are different all the children are different and the rules are different and hey they didn't used to ring that bell and whoa that's not the playground I remember and whoa the lessons used to be 40 minutes why are they now 50 or whatever everything's different it's not my school anymore I'm a grown-up and they're running and living in the school I have my memories of it And it was great for me, and it worked, or it was dreadful for me, and it didn't work. But it is not mine anymore. And to some extent, at 65 years old, I look at the BBC now, and especially at comedy, which I think is a young person's game, and I go, that's the school now. It's not my school. I can't, you know, say, hey...
0: Well, hey, I, hey, I, I understand that, but if the implication <laughs> of any of that is that there isn't a place for you in school, I would refute it. Well, Stephen, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. It. Thank you very much for, indeed for talking to us. Thank you. My thanks to Stephen Fry, Renaissance man. I hope he does go back to school. Now, we have a little more of that interview available where I discuss with Stephen why he doesn't describe himself as an atheist rather than a humanist and why he's fascinated by churches. You can find that discussion and my weekly newsletter by subscribing to Patreon. You will find the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. Do let us know what you think about that interview and any other guest you'd like us to talk to. You can get in touch on Twitter by using at BeepRoger or on Mastodon using at Roger Bolton. Or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeepwatch.com and... As if you didn't know already. The podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it is produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Clifton Bank Studios, and it's a good egg production. Until next time. Goodbye.